0: to you all Um, my family joins me this morning and we were driving up uh, nostalgic about our time here about six years or so where we were driving up every Sunday and sometimes Fridays and Saturdays to join you And it was a wonderful time for us to grow and learn and be loved by you all so let me bring the thanks of of my family first as we rejoin you in worship this morning I also bring the thanks and greetings from Westminster Seminary California as Andrew pointed out You've hired a number of our graduates. Thank you for giving them jobs. Andrew, Jonathan, Paul, we're so delighted by the partnership that we have. And as we shape the future leaders of the church, these are the pastors of our children and grandchildren. And we're so grateful for your part and partnership with us regarding that as well. We're so delighted that the church continues to grow. And Pastor Min here, whom I saw earlier this morning as well, we're so glad that the Lord is continuing to bless the church, and you have our prayers as we continue to labor alongside, and we ask that you pray for us as well as we begin our semester in about a week or so. This morning, we want to turn our attention to Psalm 136, 136, there are 26 verses, we are going to be looking at all the verses at different stages, but for uh, sake of time, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 3 and verse 26. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. When we're younger, we think in months, like a girl who's three years and 11 months telling others that she's actually four, anticipating that month to pass by pretty quickly. When we get to be teenagers, we think in years, as in when my kids would say, that was a long time ago, and you find out it's only about a year or two years ago. To them, it was almost a large percentage of their lifetime. When you get to be my age, right around the corner from 50, you come to realize that everything is counted in decades. How often have I heard myself say, well, in my 20s, in my 30s, and pretty soon I'll be saying, during my 40s, we'll be telling people how my life might have been like. Aging provides us with perspective, and lovers of history value the lessons learned and wisdom gained over time. But if much wisdom can be gained by thinking about years and decades, just imagine what the psalmist does with centuries and millennia, because this is what we have right before us, history of the Israelites from the time of creation. And I do hope that as we think about this text, we will agree on this particular point, that the good God is faithful and indeed worthy of our thanks. The good God is faithful and worthy of our thanks. The psalmist sets out with his main point in verse 1 when he says simply, Give thanks to the Lord, and he gives us the reason why. For he is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Perhaps you remember the story of the rich young man from Mark 10 who approached Jesus and asked this question when he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer, which is often the case, a non-answer, that is, Whatever the question is being thrown, he wants to direct that person's attention away from the question that he is asking to the question that Jesus wants to answer. Because Jesus' reply was simply this, Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good, he said. No one is good except God alone. Well, the psalmist begins with this premise. God is good. God is good, he says. Give thanks. Why is God good This is where the psalmist begins to tell us history. In fact, his story of who God is in order to remind us of the goodness of the Lord. We struggle with modern arrogance, thinking that everything that mattered happened last year, the last five years, last decade. Just checking at the books that you have in your shelves indicate to us how much of our minds and mindsets are focused on those things that are recent and modern. But the psalmist is thinking big. He's thinking centuries and millennia, and he begins by talking about creation. He says, God made the heavens, verse 5, the earth, verse 6, the great lights, verse 7, the sun, verse 8, and the moon and the stars, verse 9. He recounts the Lord's salvation from Exodus when God struck down the firstborn of Egypt, verse 10, brought Israel out out of bondage, and verse 11, Divided the Red Sea in two, verse 12. Made Israel pass through the midst of it, verse 13. And overthrew Pharaoh and his host, verse 14. He remembers the opposition when he talks about the great kings, verse 17. The mighty kings, verse 18. The king of Amorites, verse 19. And the king of Bashan, verse 20. Who were no match for God of gods, verse 2. And the Lord of lords, verse 3. He took their land and gave the lands to his people, the Israelites, according to verses 21 and 22. It's a quick overview of all of human history. And what do we see and understand from this history lesson? Simply this. God is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. This is not because life has been easy. Um, there is a. Um, if I can pause here, am I lisping a lot? Yeah. Uh, the microphones like this give me a, a bit of a, uh, uh, a traumatic remembrance because there's one occasion where every S was sounding accentuated. So here I am, pausing for a sec. But to go back, his love endures forever. This is not because life is easy. I mean, he points out the opposition that's actually included here and many of those people, kings no less, who are opposing the people of Israelites. But perhaps most striking in terms of indicating the reality of life is what's found in the chapter after Psalm 136, one of the most sad and difficult psalms that you will ever read. There is some scholarly debate over psalms and the arrangements. That is, in short, some believe that there is no order to the ways that the psalms are arranged. That is, when you read 136 and 137, these are separate things included in an anthology of poetry. There are other scholars who also believe, however, that there are reasons why things are arranged the way they are. That is, 137 is directly followed by 137 and 138 for reasons that you and I need to discover, that every psalm needs to be read in context. And at least for me, I agree with the latter, because what you see in 137 is the recounting of the people of God as prisoners of war being driven away from their home by their captors and tormentors. As they're being dragged away, the sadness overwhelms them, and as they sit, they start crying. And around him, the captors start mocking them and taunting the people of God and asking them to sing a song, saying, in verse 3 of 137, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing us a song and dance for us. Songs that indicate your happiness even though they're captives, they mock them. And the psalmist at that time records what is one of the most haunting questions ever recorded when he says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we sing songs of joy and hope in the midst of sadness and brokenness? How do we account for the difficulties that we see, whether it's physical and individual, or whether it's corporate and national, when we recognize we're on this side of glory and things are not the way they're supposed to be? How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? As the elder Daniel prayed, so many items of news taking front and center in our images, in our minds, not only now, in the last two years, where we recognize that this is not our home, and this is not the way it's supposed to be. How do we sing the Lord's song in the midst of living in a foreign land? That's the question 137 asks. Yet what surrounds the sorrow and seeming hopelessness are the words of 136 and also the following 138. Because in chapter 138, verse 8, the psalmist simply says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Enveloping the difficulties and the valleys of shadows of death are these words that are repeated for all the believers to remember. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. God is good because his steadfast love has no end. Perhaps as another translation has it, it never quits. This is the goodness of the Lord, we're told. But this is where we come to recognize that even if you forget everything else that we read and hear today, the psalmist makes sure that you remember the refrain. It's almost as if it's unending because every verse has this refrain. Twenty-six times he repeats, and the twenty-six times he repeats the phrase, The steadfast love endures forever. God's love has no end. The psalmist wants us to remember. Now, I realize his steadfast love endures forever seems simple enough. It's easy for us to remember. He certainly repeated it enough times for us to consider it and deeply implant it in our brains. Certainly, I do not want to make things more complicated, but perhaps many of you recognize that the word translated into the English phrase, Steadfast love actually has a very complicated history. In fact, it's a very complex word that requires unpacking somewhat. This explains the remarkable variety in English translations. Just listen to the variety here when you have your text, which is the ESV, that says, His steadfast love. NIV has it, His love. NASV has, His loving kindness. NLT has it, His faithful love. King James Version has it, his mercy. N.E.T. has it, my favorite, his loyal love. Notice the variety with which you're actually translating the same word called hesed, which is oftentimes known by the English speaker as a very complicated Hebrew original behind it. Now, you and I recognize, and many of you are here bilingual, perhaps uh, trilingual, recognize how remarkably different translations are. Translation involves transferring the meaning of the word, the implication of the phrase and the sentence, and the impact of the word into a different culture to a group of people who are unfamiliar with the history, context, and culture of the original word and the usage. This is why there is a proverb in Italian that simply says, translator, traitor. Another way to put that is simply, translation is treason as some people have put it. This is part of the reason why your pastors spend a lot of time and years studying the original languages in order to better understand where the language is coming from, but you recognize how translations are so difficult. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. I love the Olympics. Many of you saw the Tokyo Olympics recently. I love watching sports that I do not care about for three years and 50 weeks, yet for those two weeks, I resolve to schedule my time around the uh, uh, events like the synchronized swimming, synchronized diving uh, for for all intents and purposes, useless sport. Yet when you watch it, you're mesmerized by what's going on. Well, there's this one Taekwondo athlete who was made famous online. Maybe you heard of this. She actually had her belt, and she's not a Korean speaker, but yet she had actually these words um, uh, written into her belt that simply meant We think, train hard, dream dream big in English. Now, as you know well, the word train can mean physical activity of preparation, or taken out of context can also mean a locomotive, a choo-choo train. And if you just put that word in Google Translate, you don't know what you're going to get. The best guess is that she actually just Google translated the word because on her belt, simply said, which basically means in Korean, train a locomotive, hard. And then the next word was dream big, but in English, what you have is the adjective that modifies before the noun. In Korean, here, it was switched around, and it simply said, right? big, dream, or dream big, reversing the word order that you're intending. That's how complicated it can be. Words have multiple meanings, and sometimes when you directly translate, it doesn't actually work out. Perhaps more relevant to our point here are words that you cannot use one-word equivalents. It's kind of like the Korean word han. Um, I'm not trying to give a Korean lesson here, but last night, as I was um, thinking about today, uh, most pastors... Who are mature should be praying, but I was watching Netflix and as I was watching the special on Korean cold noodles, naengmyeon is what they're called. I know many of you are very interested in going home and watching this now. The whole history of the noodles is included in this story and there's this one particular owner of a shop who talked about how this Korean noodles, by the way, mostly coming from the previous northern Korea, coming south after the Korean War, was talking about his dad, who actually began this store. In this restaurant, he has this big map that was hand-drawn. Nobody knew exactly what that was, and he started explaining. His dad, who came from North Korea, started this cold noodle shop, drew this map of his own hometown and village in North Korea, and told his son, I can't go there. But when you go there, look for these things. And he actually drew out the road and the houses that he anticipates his son seeing. And he wrote a letter to the next of it where he confesses that he was being a bad son to his parents who are still up north, unable to return home. And this son who's telling the story and reading the letter said, I could never read this without crying. This nearly 70-year-old man was crying even as he was reading it. And he said, there was a lot of han in my father. The translation in the subtitle says anguish, but it's hard word to translate because dictionaries do not do it enough justice as you think about it. Because you come to recognize that there is no direct English translation. It implies heart burnings, ill feeling, anguish, with the addition of regret and unsatisfied longing leading to a state of sadness and melancholy. How do you actually put that into a single word, into a translation in English, where there is no such concept that can be actually portrayed? This is how difficult the translations are, and especially for this word hesed, when you come to realize that this word means much more than oftentimes how we translate it. The word here used for love, in this particular refrain, means covenant love, or loyal love, or the favor God shows to those with whom he has entered into a covenant relationship. It is enduring because God is the God of word, and he cannot change, nor can he lie. It's mercy bestowed upon people who deserve the opposite, who live in sin, rebellion, and hostility toward God. It's grace poured out upon people who do not deserve the riches of his blessings, having lived for oneself and not worshiping the God of creation and redemption. It's love given to the people who did not love and who, even after receiving love, do not love very well, often professing one thing with their mouths, but actions betraying those alleged convictions they seem to confess in song or in words. That's the love that the psalmist is speaking of. It is covenant love fulfilled in his son Jesus and through his Son's name alone. Note with me not the mechanism of how God saves, but the motivation of salvation in the verses read together uh, in our uh, Confession of Faith afterwards, when it says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 8, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, undeserved mercy, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Paul doesn't have words to describe how our Father in heaven sees us, in his son Jesus, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The key in this psalm is that this love of the Lord is constant. It never ends. It never quits on you, no matter where you are and what you are. It is always, in fact, Ephesians 1 Verses 3 and 4 tell us the same when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is the reason Paul is able to say with confidence in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He gives all kinds of contenders. And at the end, he says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And to those under persecution in the first century in Hebrews, we are told and declared in chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. His love never quits. Your love and my love, they quit all the time. They change depending on our emotions, what happens. How many of us felt betrayed by someone who poured out themselves to us at different stages or how many of us have been guilty of the same? Yet the point that the scripture is trying to remind us, no matter where you're coming from today, whether you come with burdens unbearable, Because your body is breaking, your minds are filled with concerns and cares, and the future seems bleak and uncertain. On that day, here we are told, God's love for you never quits. You may not feel it, you may not fully comprehend it. But here, the psalmist is telling you, this has been the characteristic of God, not just in your lifetime, but all of human history. Our love for you in Christ Jesus will never quit. There are times, weeks and months and years, when we need to hear this over and over again. Our God's love for you in Christ Jesus will never quit. My friends who are going off to college for the first time or the second time or the third time, third-year students coming going on campus for the first time in some ways, friends, when you're away, the Lord's love for you never quits. For those of you, as you leave this church, think about the challenges that are all around us, filling us the last year and a half, now, even as we look forward to the future. Here, for those of you who are praying for the Lord's presence and his will to be done in this church, friends, remember, the Lord's love for you and this church never quits. I see dear friends who are missionaries here, and I'm sure who are online, who are in different places where things seem bleak and the Lord seems so far away. Here, my friends, the Lord's promise to you from the foundation of the world, his love for you in Christ Jesus will never quit. His steadfast love for you endures forever. This is where the psalmist reminds us of something. And these are the verses that we read. I'm going to read them again, this time emphasizing the point that the psalmist wants to make. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. 26, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Maybe my young friends can tell me what the lesson is here that we are to draw. It's pretty clear, no? When you repeat it multiple times as your parents repeat the same thing over and over again, don't blame the parents for forgetting. It means you haven't done it. I know you're thinking, this old man is always defending parents. It's true. I take sides. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks has lots of different meanings. This is called the Great Hallel, chapter 136, because it's in a part of a series that talks about how we ought to give praise to the Lord. Praise the Lord, translated as hallelujah, isn't it? This is called the Great Hallel, because this emphasizes our need for us to praise and worship and give thanks to the Lord. It's easier said than done, isn't it? Like lots of things, it's easy for us to say give thanks. But our hearts are prone to wander, and our eyes fixate on what is missing rather than what is present. But the psalmist says give thanks, full stop. It does not say give thanks in perfect circumstances. It does not say give thanks in abundant provisions. It doesn't say give thanks when the future is certain and bright and guaranteed. It doesn't say give thanks when your health is always great. It doesn't say give thanks when your children are perfect, always leading. It doesn't say give thanks only when you feel like it. It says give thanks, full stop. And the only qualifier is you give thanks to the Lord. And the reason is this sovereign God has always been in charge who has been so gracious to you for his steadfast love endures forever. Have you heard the Apostle Paul as he begins every letter with thanks? Have you noticed that it's repeated over and over again? And throughout his writings in places like Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always and for everything. Notice that. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 1 Thessalonians, you know well, where it says in chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks not because things are great, but give thanks because God's love for you in Christ Jesus is steadfast. His love for you endures forever. Heidegger Catechism, question and answer 28, asks this question. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence, that's what we saw here, isn't it? It's all of history. How does God's creation and providence help us as believers? And it answers the question already five centuries ago, We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. You know why? Because you didn't do it. Thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. Romans 8. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature can separate us. My friends, I'm going to ask you a question you don't have to answer out loud. Are you thankful? What most often comes out of your mouth? when you speak to people? What is the major content of your prayers? What is natural mindset for you as you think about the world around you? My advisor in grad school said something to me that was kind of intriguing. He said, when you fill up your belly button with water and look closely, it looks like an ocean. His point was, you need to see broadly. And when you look outside, what the scripture reminds you, no matter what you're facing that day, that week, that month, last year, last decade, the reminder to us is the God of creation from the beginning of time to even now because of Christ Jesus, his love for you will endure forever. And your response to him is to give thanks, for he is good. May the Lord move your heart by his spirit so that you as individuals, as family, as children, and as church will lift up endless praises to the Lord, giving thanks to him because of his unending refrain to you and a reminder that his love will endure forever for you. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you this morning, we do not deserve your love and care and concern. Who are we, as the psalmist declared, that you are mindful of us, that you are with us, near us, next to us? Thank you for your sustaining grace upon the families that are here, as well as this church for the last year years and decades we're so grateful for your kind provisions for us despite our undeserving nature and sinfulness and we ask that O lord by your spirit you'll move within us to see and experience your goodness and love toward us that you've promised and shown in your son jesus so that we may ever experience that love in our lives daily teach us O lord for we are groaning people we are natural complainers And our default mode is to look for those things that are negative and not to see your invisible hands at work all around us every single day. Open our eyes, O Lord, to be able to see and experience your goodness around us and move our lips and our hearts to lift up praises and thanksgiving to you always. May we and our families and this church, the first characterization that others will see in us will be that we're thankful people for our God has been so good to us. We thank you and we pray this in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.